Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations, their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a fireside chat with ACS Executive Director and CEO, Dr. Patricia Turner, a general surgeon with minimally invasive expertise. Dr. Turner shares career advice and explains how she navigates her role as a surgeon, mother, and busy executive. She also answers questions from the audience who participated in the program in early November of 2022. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Thank you to Dr. Shabahang for um, having this conversation, to Dr. Sachdeva and all the staff of the Division of Education, because the Academy uh, of Master Surgeon Educators has really been a great addition um, to the offerings of the ACS, so it's really a pleasure to participate and to follow um, many really interesting people who participated in this uh, in this endeavor before. I see lots of familiar faces, so would encourage um, questions. I think sometimes that's the most interesting part of the evening, or questions that come from all of you. So please do feel free uh, to ask some questions. Um, so the the quick elevator version of my story. Uh, I'm a native Washingtonian, as we were talking about before. So born and raised in the city. I'm one of those rare people that's actually from DC. So when people say there are no people from DC, we do exist. Um, And uh, so again, born and raised in the city. Um, I went to the University of Pennsylvania for undergrad. I was a biology major um, and then took a couple of years off, did research at Georgetown um, before going to medical school at Wake Forest. And um, then came back to DC and did my residency at Howard University, which is where we overlapped uh, because uh, Georgetown and Howard um, overlapped at DC General, which was our, our big um, heavy trauma uh, hospital in town. And then we also interacted with uh, the Navy surgeons and GW um, in pediatric surgery and surgical oncology. So those of us who trained in DC all um, had a chance to interact with one another. I did two years of research at the NIH um, in the Heart, Lung and Blood Institute, uh, and then um, went to New York where I did my MIS fellowship. And um, I was there as a Mount Sinai fellow, but had the opportunity to uh, do some of my fellowship training at Cornell, um, at Mount Sinai, and at Columbia uh, during that one year, and then was recruited to the University of Maryland, where I was for the next eight years on faculty, and um, ultimately uh, took responsibility for the the residency program, became the program director, and uh, left there in 2011 to join the ACS. And the Division of Member Services, which is a role I stepped in following Skip Collicott, known to many of you, um, was, a, was a real change from what I would have thought was a traditional academic pathway, um, but really was a, a wonderful opportunity. Thoroughly enjoyed the 10 years that I, in that capacity, which is where I got to know many of you. And then um, when uh, Dr. Hoyt announced that he was uh, moving on to uh, bigger and better things as he retired, uh, had the opportunity to move into this role uh, where I've been since January. So um, kind of the quick story. And, and that's appreciated. And, and I want to ask you, um, through this journey, what were some of the um, major forks in the road where you really felt like one decision or another shaped the next several years? I would say that probably the decision to step off of the traditional academic pathway was probably the biggest fork in the road. I think we all can identify forks um, in the road that have that have led us in different directions. But certainly, if you had asked me, you know, 15 years ago, um, I would have said that I would have spent my entire career in a traditional academic surgery pathway, and that's really that had been my plan as a as a medical student, um, as a resident, and certainly as a junior faculty member at the University of Maryland, and so thinking about uh, division chief jobs, which is what I was thinking about at the time, um, and thinking broadly about other opportunities at the time, uh, really is what allowed me to even consider stepping off of that pathway. Um, There were individuals who are are leaders uh, still uh, at the ACS who encouraged me to consider applying for that role. So I guess the lesson, if there are some some junior folks on the call, is um, sometimes when uh, mentors and advocates make suggestions, even if it doesn't make sense to you at the time, 
Uh, if someone gives you typically good advice, it is worth listening to them when they make recommendations. And so considering the uh, member services role was something that I did in part because I was interested in it and had been engaged in many committees, many of which were, were um, education committees with Dr. Sachdeva. So I think going back to residency, I'd been on some education committees and certainly loved the ACS. It was my specialty society. I'm an MIS surgeon, so obviously SAGES is another of my organizations, but the ACS um, was a, a priority for me. And so considering applying for that role and then being able to share what I would do in that role if I had been given the opportunity resonated with the with the committee and uh you know the next 10 years unfolded from there and have you ever looked back and say well maybe maybe no ne never looked back i i think um it would be unreasonable to say that i didn't in the beginning wonder about stepping off of the pathway that i that i knew um yeah. i knew how to operate i knew how to teach and train surgeons i knew how to be an academic surgeon um, and thinking about stepping away from some of those things or having them become an increasingly smaller part of the percentage of my effort um, was something that I considered. But I think um, the, the best way that I can describe it is it's similar to when you go from being a faculty member to being the program director. You know, when you're a faculty member, you may take one resident through a case or you may talk to one student on rounds. Um, but when you're the program director, you have responsibility for um, sort of the, the entire family. It's like your, your children. You are responsible for everyone who's in your program. And so your impact is theoretically broader than just one resident at a time or one student at a time. So when I moved to the ACS, I looked at it in a similar fashion thinking, you know, I now have 83,000 members and all of the patients that they impact. And so my ability to think about ways that we can enhance um, what we do in terms of education, what we do in terms of quality, what we do in terms of advocacy on behalf of all of those surgeons and all of the patients that they impact seemed like a great step um, forward as it relates to, to impact and advancing what I know to be the priorities of the college. Excellent. And I see a question that says, how did your AMA exposure come about and impact your journey? No, that's a great question. I, I do believe that organized medicine, certainly organized surgery, but organized medicine writ large has played a role uh, in my career. And I think there's the, the strict education component that we get from some of our specialty societies. There's a networking component that also comes forth as it may relate to um, someone who does similar research to you and you engage with them at a meeting. And so that may lead to um, collaborations. Something like my experience at the AMA was important because you get to interact there with individuals that are not only surgeons, but of all specialties, because clearly surgery is what I do. But there are things when we talk about advocacy efforts, when we talk about reimbursement, when we talk about, you know, ethics, professionalism, some of those elements cut across specialty. And so the AMA is a place where for better or for worse, um, you know, when we say AMA, anyone in the country recognizes that that is in some ways a representation of medicine in this country. And so as we think about ways to have an impact, going back to what we talked about before, being engaged and having a seat at the table at the AMA and other places has been a priority. Another thing that has been important is as surgeons, it's important that we have roles in these organizations that are not entirely surgery centric because we can't be on the outside and then point a finger at another organization not advocating for us properly or not having our priorities be their priorities if we're not in the organization, if we're not in leadership roles. Um, so I had the opportunity there, for example, to get onto their council on medical education and ultimately rose to be chair of that council. So the responsibility of that council includes undergraduate, graduate, and continuing medical education. So making sure that there's a surgeon's voice on that council is an important element of medical education writ large. So I do think that, that being engaged, um, I had the privilege of chairing our delegation, the ACS delegation to the AMA. I've actually stepped down um, just this past June, but I think that's an essential component and the voice of surgeons in those organizations that are not strictly surgery is an important thing that that we can do. In fact, I see some of my AMA colleagues here on the on the call. Excellent.
I always like to ask about adversity. Um, uh, what um, can you share any of uh, any of the again kind of the adversities that created uh, a, a learning that that impacted your journey um, uh, to this point? Adversity. Yes, you know, I think we all can think of uh, of things that didn't go as smoothly as we might have thought. And at the time, um, those were challenges. But in retrospect, there were often learnings that came forth from that. And, and certainly, I have had my my fair share of, of bumps in the road. I think um, you know one of the comments that I made in a talk I gave to a group about resources. The, the conversation it was a talk that really ultimately evolved into something where a junior person was asking about resources in an academic institution. Like, how do you get the things you need to be successful? So that was kind of the context of the, of the conversation. And so the example that I gave to them is early in my time at the University of Maryland, I was trying to do some outcomes research. I didn't have a statistician. I didn't even have like a piece of a statistician. I'm trying to do these, write these papers using big databases without a statistician. And so, you know, sort of barking, up the same tree with the same message was not engendering a different response. So a creative approach is what ultimately was, um, was what got me to where I wanted to go. And that was that I was fortunate enough to receive a, an award, in fact, from the AMA, going back to our previous conversation, the Joan Giambalvo Award, um, which was a traveling award, but you can use it um, kind of any way you want. And so rather than using it to travel to a meeting, which is what it was really designed to do. I used it to travel back and forth to the Cleveland Clinic where there was a group of anesthesiologists who were also trying to do outcomes research around surgery. And so that group of anesthesiologists needed a surgeon and I needed infrastructure and statisticians. Wow. And so using that award, not to go to a meeting, but to fly back and forth to Cleveland to meet with this group, you know, ultimately, you know, generated, you know, a half dozen papers and it was great. And so I tell that story to say that like, you can look at that and say, well, you know, it's a bummer that for the first two or three years, you didn't have access to the statistician you needed, but ultimately that was a relationship that bore fruit for several years. And so I didn't get a statistician in the traditional way, but was able to think creatively about how to solve that problem and ultimately, you know, got to a good place. So I, I think all of our adversity stories can have a happy ending if we think about that adversity as a pathway to a more creative or innovative solution um, and figuring out how to parlay that into something that ultimately advances our goals. That, that's a great story. That's a great story. And I just wanted to point out a compliment in the chat box that you were a phenomenal chair of the Council of Medical Education. So I just wanted to bring your attention to that. Thank you, also. Dr. Andrew. And again, to the audience, please, please, please um, feel free to put stuff in the uh, chat box or, um, or, or just raise your hand. And I see a question in the chat box. Um, what are your thoughts about ACS partnering with hospital systems? Um, and, and it's totally fine. We were going to come to the ACS, but we can do that now. What are your thoughts about ACS partnering with hospital systems uh, that is a Geisinger, Mayo, Advent Health, Cleveland Clinic, since most surgeons are now employed, hospital s systems seem not to be aligned with surgeons' interests as opposed to hospital system interests about areas such as advocacy, for example. It's a great question. And we do know, as you've highlighted um, in that question, that most surgeons are employed now. That's very different than decades ago where the vast majority of our surgeons were in private practice. And if you were employed, you were employed, you know, in an academic setting or perhaps a small slice like at the VA, for example, but by and large, you were sort of private practice or academics. And now the pendulum has swung in an entirely different way where the majority of our surgeons are employed and there are some that are still in private practice. So I would make a couple of comments. One, the ACS certainly is prioritizing supporting surgeons in both all types of practice patterns. So we are supporting individuals who are in private practice and the, and the ones and twos, like the small private practice. We're supporting surgeons that are in the larger private practices that may have multiple people but are still owned by surgeons, as well as those that are in the various configurations of the employment model. 
Um, and that can take a lot of shapes. I mean, that can be you're employed by the hospital. It can be that it's a doctor owned practice, but you're an employee. So it may be doctor owned, but you're still employed. You are not one of the owners. It could be the academic environment and, and many other configurations. So the comment about working closely with hospital systems is absolutely key. So there are ways that we look at, for example, our quality programs. So it's fine for us to say to a surgeon, we want you to be engaged in quality, but if the hospital is not engaged, then it's difficult for a surgeon who is employed to change what a hospital system is going to do. So that means we have to have a multi-pronged approach as we talk about quality. So quality as it relates to the patients, quality as it relates to the surgeon, quality as it relates to the hospital, and increasingly quality as it relates to the system. Because often um, what we see is that what was a private hospital or a community hospital today has been bought up by a big system, either an academic one or a for-profit one. And so next year, they may be part of a system. And so as we talk, for example, about quality, we're having those conversations. Another thing um, that's sort of an interesting point is that if you looked at what came forth from ACS governor surveys in the past, going back say 20 years, tort reform was like number one or number two on the list for years. You hardly hear surgeons even talking about tort reform anymore because by and large, again, there's exceptions to every rule, but by and large, malpractice is paid for by the employer. And so there is less of a conversation about, um, about tort reform. So when we have conversations with hospitals, we are mindful that things that should impact our members sometimes go through the lens of the hospital. So when we talk about reimbursement being lowered, it is a mistake for our surgeons to not think that's important to them because they are employed. Because while today it might not impact them, it will impact them tomorrow because if our reimbursement is lowered as physicians, the hospital's bottom line is impacted. And so when your contract is renegotiated, <clears throat> they will absolutely be taking that into account. So things like the advocacy efforts, reduction in reimbursement, those are important for those surgeons who are both employed and those who are in private practice. So we do try to have those conversations um, at a system level as well. Quality is kind of an easy example, but many times we do have those conversations more broadly. The last thing I'll say is that I do think that there are conversations that we can have as an organization at high levels with the Joint Commission, with the American Hospital Association. You know, where is their alignment? We are not aligned on everything, but we are aligned on some things. So if we think about what does the AHA want? The AHA wants to not be in trouble with the Joint Commission, for example. What do we want? We want to make sure that quality is at its highest level and we know how to do quality. We've been doing it since 1913. So where are the conversations that we can have with the AHA, conversations with the Joint Commission? How do we um, perhaps take control of the surgery elements of uh, the Joint Commission? Or how do we work with them to make sure that we're measuring things that are important, not just things that are easy to measure, so that it's more meaningful and so that the AHA and the Joint Commission and the college can perhaps get on the same side as opposed to um, having a, a more conflict uh, forward engagement. Patricia, you know, this is wonderful. We're getting a lot of questions and if it, I hope it's okay that we're going to just see sure. some back and forth between wrong. personal topics. I just want to take the prerogative to ask this question. In the journey to value, which is a really tough journey because um, the fee-for-service is still paying for much of what hospital systems make, both on a personal level and um, the college uh, position. What is your feeling about that? How are we going to get to what we all would agree is where we should be? And what does that mean for surgeons? That is the million-dollar question. Yes. What we want um, what all of us want is for us to be paid for high quality care. I think we would all agree that the fee-for-service model, which was in place for years, which is still in place you know, in many ways, fundamentally, um, may not reward what we want to reward, which is the provision of high quality care. So the conversation about value and on how we value a surgeon is a lot of the work that's ongoing right now. We have the Thrive Project underway. There's some other elements coming out of the Division of Advocacy and Health Policy that really have to do with what is the calculus to figure out the contribution and the value of a surgeon to the system. 
mindful that there are going to be individuals in the C-suites of many of our hospitals who have never cared for a patient. You know, they may have an MBA, they may be really, you know, smart people, but they've never cared for a patient and don't really understand the downstream impact of some of the decisions that they make that works fine on the balance sheet, but doesn't really work when you try to do that with an actual, you know, living, breathing patient. So part of the conversation is let's change the entire construct to make sure that we're rewarding high value. And so that conversation, as you can imagine, has to happen in both the C-suite and on the Hill. And that's really where it's quite difficult. Um, it is, I don't think I have to tell anyone on this call that it's very difficult to get the federal government to do something that may be the best thing to do if it's going to cost more money on the front side. And that's really what we're talking about, changing the system so that we reward um, more broadly as it relates to the provision of high quality care. The other thing that makes it complicated is that when we look at systems of care, the surgeons are one part of it, but they're not functioning in isolation. So cancer is a great example. So we can talk about what the surgical oncologist does and how that person should be paid. But when the hospital looks at it, they're not looking at the surgeon, they're looking at the patient and everything that is in that vertical, if you will. So they're looking at the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, pharma, radiology, pathology, and the surgeon is a slice of the pie. So being able to tease out where the surgeon, where the surgeon's contribution is and how it should be reimbursed when there's good quality or bad quality at the end of the day, who owns that? Is it us or is it someone else in the system? So that's what makes it complicated. So I, I could talk about this all night, I will not, but I'll say that we are absolutely engaged in trying to change the conversation about how we're reimbursed to include elements related to high quality provision of care. But it's more complicated than just looking at an individual surgeon's outcomes and saying this surgeon had good outcomes, therefore they should be paid better. The, the final thing I'll say about it, just because it is a nuanced sort of conversation that we literally could talk about all day is it's also hard to extricate the system or extricate the surgeon from the system. So what we don't want to do is develop a system in which those surgeons who operate in less well-resourced hospitals or systems are, um, are penalized for not operating in a high volume, high resource environment. So what we know is that if you take a great surgeon and put them in a hospital that has very few resources, their outcomes get worse. And that surgeon isn't a worse surgeon. That surgeon is operating in a hospital with failure to rescue or with you know, numbers of, of nurses, proportions that don't work well or with bad ICU care because there's one unit for all specialties as opposed to a dedicated you know, SICU. Or, I mean, there's a thousand things we can talk about. So the unintended consequences of just saying we're going to reward surgeons with more reimbursement for better quality doesn't really account for all of the other elements that go into what makes a surgeon's outcomes good. Long no, that makes all makes <laughs> makes sense. And I'm sorry, I know it's a very complicated question that most probably right now doesn't have that many answers. So I'm going to go quick kind of uh, through some of these questions and and. Uh, um, one question is, Dr. Turner, you're a wonderful mother and excellent surgeon. Do you have any advice on work-life integration? Another million-dollar question. Um, I, I like the fact that the question asked about work-life integration as opposed to work-life balance. I think work-life balance is a falsehood. I don't even think that actually exists. Um, you may be in balance periodically, but really there is no balance. It's kind of like, you know, even a stopped clock is right twice a day. Like you might be in balance, but you're not going to stay in balance. It's just, it's not possible. So it really is much more of a question about integration. And it, it for me, I mean, I happen to, to have children, but I think whether you have children or not, there's someone that you love outside of work, you know, parents, you know, dear friends, you know, what have you. So the ability to try to discern how we are um, giving our full selves to our jobs and also giving our full selves to those we love outside of work is a thorny subject. And I'm not sure I have any answers. I mean, in fact, I always feel like when I'm at work, I should spend more time at home. And when I'm at home, I feel like I should spend more time at work. Um, a couple of things that have come to me over the, over the years is that to the extent possible, I do try to take advantage of opportunities to engage um, 
with my family and work if possible. So some people um, from other who've seen me in other settings will know that I'm that person that often brings my children with me to meetings. I mean, they're older now, so they're, they're now 23 and 17. But when they were little, I would get a lot of dirty looks, but I would bring my children to meetings because if the choice for me was to be away from my children for yet another day or not go to the meeting, I would opt to not go to the meeting because I did not see my children enough. And I already felt badly about being away from, from my little kids. So I would bring them to the meeting. And fortunately, people no longer get dirty looks for that, or it's less common. But you know, back in the olden days, when I had small children, it was a little bit more um, out of the ordinary. And so that was something that helped me. Um, another thing that has been helpful is to um, have a, a circle of friends, colleagues, whatever, um, with whom I can have con those conversations. Um, you know, my, my mother was, um, had fallen and broken her hip. This is some number of years ago. And so trying to figure out how to navigate, you know, my mother in another city while I'm, you know, trying to, you know, be the places that I have to be. Well, it helped to talk to other people with aging parents who had navigated that. And so to have those, those resources. I think that if we are not mindful of those elements, we're going to exacerbate burnout. We're going to exacerbate people leaving the specialty. We're going to lose people because they're going to say to themselves, I love my career. And I also have to be present for these other things in my life. So the more we can have conversations about integration, the more we can um, own the fact that we're setting good examples for our children when we demonstrate to them that we can be both good parents and um, hard workers and engaged professionals, um, the more that we can recognize that these are two sides of our lives that have to work together and we can't abdicate responsibility for one to do the other completely, the better off we'll be and the more our profession will attract people who say, I see myself being able to do that and operate on my patients and do a great job and it doesn't require me to not do these other things that are also important. So I think we have to keep talking about it. We have to be mindful of the, um, the operational things that we can do to make that better. When we have meetings, for example, to make sure that there's like a, you know, a nursing room at the meeting. So people who bring their babies can take care of that. Um, the more we recognize that, for example, there is educational value to writing uh, papers about burnout and resilience and how to mitigate those and what are the strategies and how do we teach residents to be resilient and to have grit so that they are successful 35, 45 years from now so that we don't lose them after we've invested so fully in them, um, you know, at the beginning. And I'm going to take advantage of the of the moment. And if, if I may ask a personal question, when you think about your leadership, when you think about kind of the the, the issues that you just discussed, um, which you know there's some there's some evidence that meaning and 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 uh, burnout and resilience do correlate. What do you feel um, gives you meaning as a leader in the surgical world as a person? Um, and has that changed over the years or is that a, a fairly constant um, concept? I think, and I suspect that most of us think that it's really a privilege to be a surgeon. I mean, we love it, otherwise we wouldn't do it. I mean, that is one of the highest callings. It is a privilege for patients to allow us to care for them in the way that we do. You know, we all want to do what's best for our patients. We are all willing to pour the blood, sweat, and tears into being the best surgeons that we can be, making sure that we're on the cutting edge of innovation, making sure that we are lifelong learners so that we're doing the right thing. We are not allowed to not be on our A game ever, period. I mean, that is just the nature of being a surgeon. And so that is a profound responsibility and a profound privilege. And so that is what really keeps me, and I suspect most of us, you know, getting up every morning and working hard into the night, which is why all of you are on the phone or on the computer, you know, tonight, because this is a conversation that, you know, hopefully will be meaningful to us in the service of caring for patients. Because at the end of the day, everything that we do, certainly everything that the American College of Surgeons does, and everything that we do as individuals um, is in the service of better care for the patient at the end of the day. 
And so whether it's, again, you know, education or quality or, you know, a specific narrow area of specialty, you know, all of that is so that we do a better job at the end of the day. And that's what gives us the energy to keep doing what we're doing and to invest in ourselves and in others, those for whom we advocate, those whom we train, um, so that we can create a, you know, another cadre of individuals who feel the same way that we do and are willing to invest passionately to make sure that we're, we're putting, um, you know, patients first. So I think those are the things that, that are critically important. And then if we think about that in the context of the entire person, just to loop it back to the previous question, that's how we um, are mindful that the entirety of the individual makes us all better surgeons. Like I'm a better surgeon because I'm a mother. It's not like I'm a better surgeon in spite of being a mother. There are things that I do at work that are informed by what happens at home or by outside of work. And it works vice versa. Like I suspect I'm a better mother because I'm a surgeon. So I think, you know, when we think about our whole selves and what lived experiences we bring to the table, um, and you can slice that any way you want, you know, a private practice surgeon is bringing something different to the table than an academician. A urologist is bringing something different to the table than a plastic surgeon. They are all contributing mightily though to the specialty and to the organization and to the enterprise. So all of those elements, our lived experiences, our problem solving skills, our you know, challenges, our adversity make us better um, parts of the mosaic that is our organization and our specialty. Thank you so much. That's beautiful. That really was beautiful. I'm going to go back to a question from Dr. Hannah. Thanks, Dr. Turner, for your visionary leadership. How do you see the role of the ACS in global surgery? I think that we began as an organization in 1913, founded by the surgeons of the U.S. and Canada. But over the years, we have rightfully been much more engaged on the world stage. Um, you know, we are still the American College of Surgeons, but we recognize that the world is really quite small. And that again, if our goal is to heal all with skill and trust, which has been the motto since 1913, we have to be mindful of ways that we can engage more fully um, with surgeons around the world and with, again, all of the patients that they serve. So there are some examples that have been in place for many, many years and some things that are much more recent. So if we talk about our trauma programs, for example, I mean, we've been going to South America to talk about trauma for decades. And so if we look at um, the Latin American countries, we have a really prominent presence, you know, ATLS and, you know, Adam and Asset and all of these um, courses that have been longstanding in certain Latin American countries. There are other areas of the world where we are relatively more recent in our engagement, but there's been a real push by the organization to make sure that A, we make sure that everyone knows we are welcoming to surgeons from other areas of the world. Um, two, to think about what it is that we do that will be well-received and beneficial to surgeons in other countries. I mean, everything that we do isn't relevant everywhere. And so there is no sort of colonialism to it. It's not like we're going around the world, you know, sort of pushing what we do on other countries as much as it is trying to figure out where there is an opportunity to engage. And what can we learn from other countries? Because again, we are not sort of the answer for absolutely everything. And we learn as much as the surgeons in the other country when we engage. And so what does that look like? I mean, we already talked about trauma education, for example, but it also looks like our humanitarian outreach efforts. You know, so as we think about what OGB is doing, we have very much gotten away from surgical tourism, which always sort of made my teeth itch, like, you know, swooping in you know, operating and then getting on a plane and leaving. Like that has never been the right thing to do. There were some well-meaning folks who thought that was the right thing to do. And so I'm not gonna criticize in retrospect, but that's really not working within um, the infrastructure of the country. And so what's much more meaningful and what we're doing now really has to do with creating an infrastructure and having, you know, board certified US surgeons with specific skill sets go and essentially staff a, a service so yes, the patients are getting operations that they may or may not have gotten in country, but we're also teaching and training residents in country to have a skill set that will remain in country so that long after this particular program is gone, that expertise resides in country. And it's done in conjunction with the surgeons of that country who identify what it is that they need and what is it that they want. Um, you know, Dr. Sashiva and I have talked about um, the success of the general surgery review course, which has been um, offered 
regionally around the world, you know, everyone's not going to be able to come to clinical Congress. You know, it's expensive, it's far, it's, you know, so on and so forth. So several regions around the world in years past, I think there was one in the Middle East, there was one in, you know, Western Europe, there was one in Latin America. Um, so something that we knew was a successful venture that then was hosted regionally so that surgeons from the surrounding countries could come and engage. So we'll be leaning into more of that. You know, for example, the best of clinical Congress, can we take that around the world? Um, you know, honestly, can we take the best of clinical Congress around the country? Because we don't really have to go overseas to find individuals who aren't able for time or money or whatever reason to make it to our meetings. So let's think about ways that we can utilize our um, accredited education institutes. Let's think about ways that we can be mindful that maybe someone's junior and they can't get time off to come to our meeting, but they would come if it was an hour drive away. Let's think about the individual in the rural environment who has no cross coverage because they're the only surgeon for 200 miles. They can't leave to go to a five-day meeting. So what if we could bring it more close, um, have it closer to them? Certainly the online component is an important part of what we do as our educational offerings are unfolding, but that's not um, the only approach. That works for some people, but like what about the camaraderie and the networking? And you know, again, looping it back to not feeling burnt out, what we know helps with burnout is knowing that you're not alone. So in addition to the education component, which is the most important part and an essential part, there is um, value in networking and camaraderie and being surrounded by like-minded people who are also experiencing some of the joys and sorrows of being a practicing surgeon. And so burnout is mitigated if you have a chance to have those interactions. And those interactions at the meeting may then in turn have you feeling like you have someone that you can call when you're experiencing some you know, moral injury as a result of a poor outcome or what have you. So it really does all work together. Yes, absolutely. And putting um, internet, kind of the global reach with loads of resource, um, Dr. Joshi from Nepal, and, and there are a couple of people here that we see um, very often, and I really thank you for that, and, and it's really kind of neat to see, um, and I know it's very early in the morning in Nepal. Um, it's, uh, the question is, Dr. Turner, do you have experience of practicing surgery in low-resource settings? If yes, how do you think we should work for quality? the improvement in service training research in surgery in low-income countries? So I would say that there really is a continuum. Um, so there are low resources in this country. There are low resources in other countries. You know, I think as we think about the continuum of resources, um, there is work to do at every level. So part of the value of our educational offerings is that it really does help to um, bring us all to a level of what is the current literature saying, what are the peer-reviewed papers saying, like what is best practice? Mindful that best practice is going to mean something different when we overlay that with resources. So if, for example, you're in a country that doesn't have access to, um, you know, radiation therapy daily, then it's hard to say this is a way that you should care for this particular cancer and the standard of care is daily radiation. If daily radiation doesn't exist in your country or in that hospital in this country. So it's not enough to just say, you know, one size fits all. And that's really where the conversations with those surgeons in country um, are, are important because we need to be mindful of what the resources are before we start talking about this is the only way to provide good care to someone. Um, similarly, in, in this country, we have hospitals as we alluded to before that are high resource um, hospitals and less resourced hospitals. So as we think about, you know, whether that applies to the way that we do our trauma designation or the way that it applies to um, what gets you um, a, a center of excellence designation or how we verify um, certain things is, you know, most everyone on this call knows, you know, we have different levels of verification and accreditation, you know, breast bariatrics, you know, cancer trauma, on and on and on. And so how do we make sure that we are mindful about what the standard of care should be? and also recognize that every hospital is not going to have access to everything. Um, and thinking about it, I think more as a continuum rather than a dichotomous variable. It's not like high resource and low resource, you know, countries or hospitals. It's a continuum and trying to make sure that the patients who get their care there get access to the best possible care in the environment in which they're seeking care. 
and trying not to be quite so paternalistic about the fact that everybody's not gonna be able to go to the quaternary care institution. So some of us, and I, I include myself in that, some of us, because I've been an academician my entire life, like it is easy for me to say as an academic surgeon, the patient should come here where we can do all of these things. Well, the patient may not want to travel, you know, hours away from home, away from their resources. Um, and by resources, I mean, you know, family, loved ones, those who can provide that kind of support. So they may want to seek care in the community. So our job is to make sure as the ACS that that community hospital is providing the best possible care for that patient in the community, because everyone's not going to want regionalized care. And we've got to you know, keep that in mind as well. That, that, that is such a refreshing kind of viewpoint. Um, uh, and we are jumping around the topics uh, and there are 17 questions. I'm beginning to think, Patricia, maybe there needs to be a part two of this. <laughs> and I just want to let everyone know you haven't missed any home runs or anything. It's still zero, zero, um, bottom of the second. Um, so the next question is clearly communication is one of your strengths. It does not matter the age of the group or area of practice. You seem to easily engage multiple surgeons on important issues. What in your background do you attribute this terrific attribute to? Uh, well, thank you for that for that comment. Um, I don't know that I have a good answer. Um, I, I think um, probably what I would say, and I'm not really sure this is exactly the answer to the question, but I, I think I am pretty comfortable in my own skin. <laughs> so I'm a little bit, kind of what you see is what you get, right? And I think that makes it easy to communicate because like literally there isn't, like there are no other layers. There's no um, sort of machinations happening behind the scenes. And so that makes it pretty easy to say whatever it is that I think is, is what it is that I'm trying to communicate. Um, whether or not that resonates, I think is something that I, don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about. And I don't know if that's good or bad. I really do try to say whatever it is that, that you know, be thoughtful about it, of course, but I think it's a little bit kind of, you know, it is what it is, you know? And I think that there's a lot of ways that we sometimes can back ourselves into a corner, trying to think about how to frame this for that person and how to frame this other thing for this other audience. And we can spend a lot of time twisting ourselves into pretzels when sometimes the simpler thing to do is just decide what it is that we're trying to communicate and then communicate it. Um, that is not to say though, that there's not a need to um, think about how information is received. And what I mean by that is, if I know that someone is very much a data-driven person, yes, I will definitely you know, speak to that person with, with charts and, and Excel spreadsheets and more data. And if someone else is really moved by um, by impact, you know, I, I may, you know, highlight that in my conversations with them. But a lot of it, I think, is just, um, you know, people are often just nice. So I figure let's let's have a conversation. And so much of my way of communicating is perhaps a little bit conversational. Um, and that often generates like questions and feedback. And that's really more interesting than um, being super stodgy. And the word authentic comes to my mind, too, is, is the style that you bring. Uh, another question, and I apologize to our participants. I'm, I am going to just skip through some of the questions and kind of filter a little bit just so we can. I know we only have about 10 minutes left. So um, it says now that many surgeons have specialized in breast, MIS, colorectal, et cetera, how can we encourage new graduates and young surgeons to join, join the college? The annual college meeting often does not appeal as it is so broad versus a specialist uh, meeting. So what is the role of the ACS for young surgeons? That is a, an ongoing conversation and really does get to the crux of the fact that we recognize that surgeons have a lot of options. I mean, there are specialty societies, subspecialty societies, sub-subspecialty societies, um, and we can't be, we the ACS cannot be all things to all surgeons. That said, we are the house of surgery for all surgeons. So as we think about putting together, for example, the program, I know the program committee um, puts in incredible time and effort into trying to cobble together something that's going to have a little bit of something for everyone. So clinical Congress is engaging and interesting. And I think we do have to acknowledge that the clinical Congress is not the be all and end all of the ways in which our surgeons of all specialties engage with us. 
So it may be if you're a, you know, fetal cardiac surgeon, you know, you're not going to come to the ACS to learn how to do in utero fetal cardiac surgery. You can still be a fellow of the college. We still want you to be a fellow. You're bringing to the table, you know, some thoughts we need to know about cardiac surgery, about, you know, pediatric surgery, so on and so forth. So everything is not going to be only clinically focused. So some of it will be clinical, but there are some things that cut across all specialties, no matter how sub, sub, sub specialized you are. So those can be things like professionalism, ethics, um, communication, um, leadership, the humanitarian effort that we just talked about. I mean, none of that is specialty and clinically um, specific. Uh, even advocacy efforts, if you're in the US, what we do around advocacy, around payment reform, around um, tort reform, around um, quality and how we get quality into the calculus for reimbursement, that impacts all of us. So I think there are some things that we do at the ACS that really do impact everyone. So what I would ask of those of you on the call and everybody that you ever speak to is really talk about the value of the ACS, like talk about it to your colleagues, talk about it to your partners, talk about it to the junior people, because they need to hear from you what the value is of the ACS and I need to hear from you. So if there are things that we do really well and we should do more of it, then you know, tell us. If there are things that we do that for whatever reason are not resonating, then tell us that too. I mean, I'm interested in hearing both the pluses and the delta. So um, you know, let us know that. And so communication is, is one thing. The second thing I'll say is that we know from survey data that the most important things for trainees as it relates to specialty engagement is what they were told by their chair and their program director. So, you know, those residents, those trainees are looking to their faculty, their program directors um, to tell them how to navigate the plethora of options available to them. They have a limited amount of time. We all have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of money. And that's time to go to the meetings. That's time to do the committee work. That's time to be engaged and then the money to pay the dues, to go to the meeting, so on and so forth. So if you've got a limited amount of time and money, you have to make choices. And so what we can do is articulate the value of the ACS, um, articulate that it is not only for clinical excellence, although it is for that, it also has these other elements um, that are critically important and that we are engaging and that we do provide the networking and the camaraderie. And you know, then we can go down the list of all of the things that cut across all specialties you know, ethics professionals and leadership, so on and so forth. And, you know, that's really what's going to bring us together. The, important, the importance of the ACS is not only one of the verticals, it's really the entire organization, the quality, the advocacy, the education, the engagement, um, you know, through all of the constituent groups. I mean, there's a, you know, there's a whole resource for those individuals who are in training, there's a whole resource for medical students, there's a whole resource for every specialty, you know, urology, plastics, CT, on and on and on. So we've got to think about it as a whole, as opposed to sort of breaking it out into individual parts that may or may not resonate with any one person, but there is something for everyone in the organization. I want to ask one last question from the audience, and I would like to leave with one question that I may throw at you. Um, the, the question from the audience is related to the previous question. Uh, Dr. Turner, as an educator, how would you advise residents and even students to be involved with leadership and advocacy for surgeons, for resources and good patient care, and maybe involvement with the college in a more general term? And if I may, I'm, I, I will. the question I wanted to leave with was as you have taken over the presidency as CEO position of the college, five years from now, three years from now, what would you like the culture of this corporation to be under your leadership? Um, so, so those are the last two questions and, 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 and thank you. So. So thank you very much for the for the question. You know, again, I could literally talk about this for an hour. Like I will not, but I mean, there are so many things that I see on the horizon for us as an organization. It is a super exciting time. Um, you know, we're building on an incredibly strong foundation and there is so much that we can accomplish uh, together as we look forward. So just to sort of distill it down super briefly, um, you know, this the, the motto to heal all with skill and trust, I mean, that really is, um, a, a way forward. 
if we think about healing all, that really does bring to mind all of these elements that we've talked about where we cut across the entire spectrum of individual members, you know, the private practice and the academic, those in highly resourced places, less resourced places um, in the US, abroad, um, all the specialties and making sure that we have something for everyone. So, you know, again, to distill that down, I would want people to say about the ACS that if you're a surgeon, the American College of Surgeons is not only relevant to you, but it is essential. And you wouldn't think of not being a member of the ACS. So in my perfect world, that's what we're talking about five years from now. We have 100% of the surgeons of all specialties, ambitious perhaps, but there we are. Um, so the, the skill piece really does have to do with the education components. And so thinking about education writ large. So yes, we are, we are talking about courses and didactics and hands-on skills courses. And we're also talking about all of those other things that we've discussed, you know, leadership and, and um, you know, professionalism. And what does that mean when we incorporate all of the teachings and learnings about all of the specific um, you know, innovation techniques and all of the specialty specific things that we need to know about. And I'll take a step back and say, we know that the boards are talking more about quality. We know that that's coming from the ABMS. So the ABMS is saying to all boards, you have to teach about quality. Well, we know how to talk about quality. Like that is what we do and that is what we have always done. So how is it that we can work jointly with the boards to teach the boards how to do quality or to get the diplomats to come to the diplomates to come to the college to put a check in that box because now we know how to teach them quality and they can stay out of trouble with their boards and the boards can stay out of trouble with the ABMS. So things that we know how to do, we need to expand um, the way in which we roll it out. And then that last component, you know, the, the trust piece, you know, healing all with skill and trust. If, if the skill is the innovation and the hands-on education, the trust is the quality piece. How do we maintain um, a feeling amongst the press, the public, politicians, that they can trust us, that we have integrity as a specialty, that we are doing the right operation on the right patient at the right time in a timely fashion, you know, with um, an emphasis on value so we don't break the healthcare system, never mind that we're only a little tiny piece of the healthcare system. We are not the reason that the healthcare in this country is so expensive, but that we are good citizens in trying to do our part to bend the cost curve. Like that is that whole element. So that's where the value and the quality and um, you know the way in which we enhance our external facing conversations. Like what are we doing from a marketing standpoint? Are we writing op-eds in the paper? Like, are we talking heads on the news so that when we say the ACS says whatever, that the, you know, the, the rank and file public recognize that for the value that it brings to the table because we really are the house of surgery and we should be the arbiter of all things surgical. And so if people have a question about surgery, is this the right operation? Where do I go to get this operation? How do I find a surgeon? What is the best evidence-based approach for this problem? I want them to come to us. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.